0: Welcome to episode 21 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, speaking to you with the benefit of a significant audio quality upgrade compared to the lo fi approach of the series so far. A rare opportunity to record an episode face to face with a guest has presented itself, allowing me access to the new Media Lab located in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University in Melbourne. I'm presently sitting in a fully kitted out radio studio and given you're listening to this, I've probably managed to make the technology I'm surrounded by work. And it's an episode that sees us start with a focus well outside sport and media before beginning to narrow in to see how issues under discussion might be applied to sport and leisure activity. My guest is Mark Andrejevic, Professor and Department Chair in Media Studies at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and a recent Media, Culture, Economy focus research appointment here in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash. Mark is a distinguished researcher in the areas of digital media and media studies more broadly, having pioneered new ways of understanding the interactive capacities and political dimensions of digital media. He's written three books and over 60 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters focused around monitoring and surveillance in the information economy. His most recent book, which I have in front of me, is titled InfoGlut, How Too Much Information is Changing the Way We Think and Know. It raises urgent and sometimes worrying questions about power and control in a world of proliferating data and algorithms. It was awarded the prestigious 2014 Nancy Bame Award by the Association of Internet Researchers. And having read the book, I can attest to the fact that it is a worthy recipient of the award. He is also the author of I Spy, Surveillance and Power in the Interactive Era and Reality TV, The Work of Being Watched. Mark edits a book series on critical approaches to television for Lexington Books and tells me that he was a journalist in a former life and has long been a keen surfer. His Twitter handle is at Mark Andreevich, Mark with a K, Andreevich spelt A-N-D-R-E-J-E-V-I-C. Mark, thanks for locking yourself on a way in a state-of-the-art soundproof booth with me for the Morty Media Sport podcast series.
1: Thanks so much for the invitation. It's great to be trying out the new equipment. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the ways in which uh, different career trajectories lead to research agendas or, or connect with them are of, are of great interest to me. What type of journalist were you and what prompted your move into academic scholarship?
1: Well, I was a, uh, you know, I was, I should say, even before I was a journalist, I was a school teacher very briefly. I was a math teacher and uh, I had been reading a lot of oh, kind of. Um, the alternative journalism of the 60s and 70s and I wanted to be a journalist in in this vein so I decided to go to journalism school and I got my master's degree at the University of Michigan while there I started freelancing for a paper called the Detroit News uh in Michigan one of the um two main newspapers in Michigan and and for them I I was a features writer and uh I started while I was a uh, graduate student. I started freelancing for a newspaper called the Detroit News, one of the uh, two main newspapers in Michigan at the time. And uh, I was a features writer as a freelancer there. And that was a, that was a wonderful job. They just gave me, uh, you know, quirky, interesting stories from all of the areas that they served. And, you know, because I wasn't a beat reporter, I got to do all the stuff that the beat reporters didn't do. So I was, um, you know, i they had a guy who I think had the, he, the largest ball of rubber bands that, that he'd collected as a, <laughs> while he was working as a, a, a maintenance person at a local school. And so, you know, I'd go to these feature stories about people who had quirky, interesting um, hobbies and, and accomplishments that they were doing. And, uh, you know, what I enjoyed about it was, the freedom of a journalist, which is to just go out into the world and talk to people and find out what's going on and then try to make sense of it in ways that were interesting or in some way useful. After that, I, I, um, got a full-time job, uh, at a newspaper called the Port Huron times Herald. I was there. Oh, politics reporter. So I did county politics and city, city, uh, town hall, basically. Um, And uh, so I got to know how small-town politics worked in the U.S. Um, And I have then moved on to a paper, the Capital City newspaper in Michigan, the Lansing State Journal, and I was their higher education, higher ed reporter. Uh, I then moved on to the Capital City newspaper in Lansing, Michigan, the Lansing State Journal, where I was their education reporter, and I covered everything from... Uh, grade schools to higher ed and the state board of education. And that was when I started getting into long conversations with academics um, as part of my beat. And I I discovered that I was really interested in talking to them. I enjoyed how they thought I would often talk to them for much longer than I needed to. And then they'd be a little surprised when an article ran, and after an hour of conversation, they had maybe one or two quotes. Uh, but that was something symptomatic of journalism for me as a as a profession. The the type of journalism that I was doing didn't really satisfy my desire to make sense out of the world. I it, you know the constraints on um, this kind of uh, mainstream journalism journalism that I was doing at the time had it were quite. Tight, and you know what counted as a story was quite narrow. And I would repeatedly come in with stories that I thought were really interesting, and they'd say, "Well, you know, okay, that's not quite news." Um, and you know, often I think they were wrong, but you know, within their market constraints, I guess they were probably right. They were the, these stories were news in the sense that people hadn't thought about them or heard about them. They weren't news in the sense that it was you know something that happened on Tuesday that needed to be reported for Wednesday. But I, what I really liked about Journalism was uh, getting to know the whole world. Uh, you know, the journalist has this certain type of freedom to move from different spaces and people, you know, you, you come into the office in the morning, you figure out what your assignment is, and then you head out of the office and you talk to people, everybody from people in the homeless shelters to the mayor's office um, to, you know, f- folks on the street. Uh, you get to know... Um, A community and and aspects of a country that you don't often see or think about unless you're uh, engaged in that type of career. So it was it was great for me in terms of kind of seeing and learning about the world, but not particularly satisfying in terms of being able to take that information and turn it into things that I wanted to write about. Uh, I decided that I'd try to go back to graduate school, and I was looking at what type of school I could go to, and um, I was interested in the media. I was working in the media, so I ended up. Uh, uh, entering a PhD program in media studies, and I already had a master's degree in journalism, which helped me uh, get into that program. And um, that's what uh, that's what made the transition for me from journalism to uh, uh, an academic career. And in some ways, you know, I see the academic career as doing what I wanted to do with journalism, which was to think about the world, but to do it in ways that were informed by, uh, you know, interesting thinkers and uh, allowed me to express what I thought was um, interesting and in many respects what I thought was wrong uh, with the world that I wanted to write about. Turning to your research, um, you know,
0: a recurring theme in your work in recent years is the idea of
1: the digital enclosure. What is it
0: and why is it important?
1: You know, the digital enclosure is, um, a way of connecting a, some strands of critical theory with, um, a familiar conception in, in, um, critical work to developments in digital media. So, you know, I first came across this term digital enclosure in the, in the work of, um, James Boyle, who was writing about the, um, the use of intellectual property laws to take information that had been in the commons or could be in the commons and and assign it property rights. So things like, um, uh, you know, finding out, you know, decoding a genome and then copywriting it. And so so then claiming a certain type of ownership and control over that information that, you know, uh, arguably... Might better serve the public interest by being in the public domain rather than than being privatized and and uh, commercialized um, and i I was interested by the way in which that formulation took a spatial concept and and um, used it in some sense metaphorically to talk about intellectual property and What I was interested in doing was thinking about the ways in which actual physical spaces were becoming enclosed in ways that allowed access to the information that those spaces generated. So I used the digital enclosure to think about the ways in which activities that used to take place in relatively unmonitored contexts had entered into, thanks to the development of digital technology, um, uh, spaces and contexts where they could be monitored. So what I mean by that is something as simple as um you know, if you walk down the street and look in the window and do some window shopping, the actions that you engage in when you look at something that might interest you and stop and check out the price if it's if it's visible um that activity was quite ephemeral e- ephemeral and disappeared. but if you go online and you you know, click on a link and, or take a look at a website, you've entered into a space where that information about what you're doing can be captured and stored. Or um, another way to think about it is, you know, think about writing a letter. Um, I sometimes ask my students, how many of you have written a letter in the past year? And the answer is, you know, almost none. When I was in college, I wrote letters all the time. And that activity, you know, didn't take place on an interactive digital platform I wrote it on a piece of paper and mailed it off and I didn't expect that anybody would you know catch my letter open it up and see what was in it or you know note the time uh, um, that I dropped it off and uh, register somewhere who it was being sent to and so on but of course now what we do instead of writing letters mostly is write email an email takes place on an interactive digital platform that allows all the information, including the content of our message, to be captured and stored and sorted and analyzed. Um, and so, those are activities that I, you know, I, I think of them as taking. You know, one way to think about it is an activity that has entered into a digital enclosure. But of course, enclosures make possible new types of activities that didn't exist before, things like online social networking and, and online. Um, dating i'm not saying dating didn't exist but you know online forms of matchmaking Um, so there are a whole wide range of activities that didn't take place prior to the development of interactive digital platforms that now allow all of the activities um, that are that these platforms make possible to generate information that can be collected and you know why is this term digital enclosure is to evoke that you know critical history of what the notion of an enclosure movement means, which is um, you know historically the the Marxist story about enclosure is uh um taking uh space. That was available publicly and and privatizing it, and then because it 's privately owned, being able to set the terms for entry and use of that space, so taking a common field and and claiming that it 's now private property, and that if you want to work on that field, you have to enter into an arrangement where you uh, you know maybe you work for a certain number of hours and get paid, but the terms of access are set by the people who control that space, and that was the point that I wanted to make about burgeoning digital interactive spaces, which is that very many of them are commercial spaces that allow the people who uh, control those spaces to set the terms of access and entry. So if you want to, you know, join Facebook, you have to accept Facebook's terms of use. And what I wanted to show is how the actual arrangement um, uh, of ownership and control uh, actually set or made possible that decision of who it is who gets to dictate the terms of of access. So, you know, if you had a a platform that was, you know, publicly supported and and publicly funded, that would be a different arrangement in terms of um, figuring out who it is who gets to set the terms of access. But if you decide to set up a private uh, system that relies on kind of private ownership and control of these spaces, then those private entities get to dictate the terms of access and entry. And uh, that was something that I wanted to point out that there are other possible ways to think about how to organize our access to information and communication technologies in the digital era. But by default, we've gone in the direction of a kind of commercial system that relies in many cases on setting terms of entry that um, require from us submission to comprehensive forms of, of data mining and data capture about what it is that we do online.
0: You spend a, a lot of your time in your most recent book, Info Glut, discussing notions of post-truth and post-comprehension politics. Given that we are in the midst of a U.S. Uh, presidential election and Donald Trump is um, exploding forth in all all directions, I mean, how, could explain why why these terms are important and how they might explain the
1: current moment. This is an this is an interesting moment that that um, I you know I. I I write a chapter in the book and I use a former Fox News figure named Glenn Beck as, as my kind of foil for thinking about post-truth politics. If I were writing that book now, it would be Trump, clearly, I think. Um, and, you know, I, I I like to think that there's some relevance to the analysis in that chapter to the current context. I, um, I've been struck by I, – I did some – Googling around not too long ago, uh, uh, you know following up on this notion of post truth politics and boy it 's everywhere you know in the coverage of brexit in the coverage of donald trump there 's this uh, almost this consensus in the uh, you know the kind of pundit world that we 've entered this realm of of post truth politics that i I was writing about, so I guess in some ways, I feel somewhat tragically vindicated as i as I look at the the trump campaign. Um, and uh i you know what i was interested in uh, um were in, in in that chapter was what looked to me like um developing political strategies that were alarming to me because i had been raised in a critical tradition that you know put some weight on the notion of being able to speak truth to power in various ways. You know, that that uh, one of the interesting things that journalists or academics might be able to do in the face of, um, you know, uh, powerful tendencies and interests that they were alarmed by is to tell stories about them that, that actually uh, contested their ideological legitimation and, you know, asked people to, uh, you know... Um, uh, or, or maybe contributed to delegitimating the uh, uh, those acts of by people in power that um, seem to be alarming or harmful or to contradict, uh, you know, uh, our values and and um, priorities. But what alarmed me was the way in which con- strategies of power, and you know, here I was thinking largely about the the. Um, George W. Bush administration no longer sought ideological legitimation entirely in the forms of um, of truth claims that you know i 'm not saying that that disappeared entirely, but um, what were emerging were strategies of kind of multiplying narratives to the point of confusion and, and generating the inability to adjudicate between them, and that this became a, a strategy of a kind of default legitimation. And we see this in a variety of ways. This is one of the strategies that people who want to contest the scientific consensus on global warming use to uh, to artificially generate a sense of confusion, right? You know, so the stories they'll tell about global warming are um, mutually incompatible uh, and generate... um, you know, the type of confusion that against the background of the internet makes it possible to have these kind of proliferating narratives that um, make it appear as if there's no way to sort through what's going on or to actually figure it out. And then the default position becomes what? Your gut instinct. You know, if if, if you can't use the available information out there because it... Um, unfolds infinitely uh, to figure out what's going on, what's left. You have to find some other default strategy. Um, You know, take the global warming example. So, you know, um, you'll have some people, some climate change deniers say, actually, uh, you know, the planet's getting colder. Some of them are saying, yeah, it's getting warmer, but it's not um, the result of human activity. Or some saying it's getting warmer and it is the result of human activity, but it's good because then, you know, new regions will be opened up to agriculture because... I don't, you know, they'll, they'll become more temperate than they were. And so you get these kind of proliferating, um, mutually contradictory stories. And then each one has this, thanks to the space of the Internet, this kind of infinite space to unfold its evidence and its claims and to contest the claims of others. What I found concerning about that is... Um, information or truth claims lose their purchase on power. If they are unable to adjudicate their own account, uh, then power continues unharassed by um, the need for, you know, some kind of truth or ideological legitimation. What's your research
0: focusing on at the moment? I mean, you've moved, you've written a lot on data and algorithms and its connection with politics and affect. So, and, and, and where has
1: this led you to? I've... I'm currently working on a book about drones, and um, it's it's quite an idiosyncratic project. The more I think about it, you know, I, I got there through my interest in surveillance and digital media and data mining, and you know, drones uh, in in some ways combine those interests. They start as surveillance technologies; they become weaponized eventually. Um, but, you know, the the military systems that I'm looking at also rely heavily on systems for the automated collection and analysis of, of large amounts of, of information. And um, the drone, for me, is becoming a kind of avatar for thinking about contemporary forms of interactivity. So what this project does is it starts with the figure of the drone, the military figure. And, you know, as uh, it, it, it draws on that tradition of media thinking, which... Locates, uh, you know, military and warfare is the is the site of many inno- innovations in in media and communication technology, um, but it it moves from the military figure of the drone uh, to other examples of distributed forms of networked monitoring devices and the the interactive um, forms of. Uh, response and communication these make possible. So the the wager of the project is, is that there's a certain logic of the drone that can be abstracted from the military figure, and that actually is coming to characterize um, contemporary forms of interactivity in a wide range of spheres of practice beyond warfare itself, uh, and that there's a kind of drone character to the current iteration of digital technology. And to to be concrete about that, I I can give you some examples of of what I'm thinking. Um, So when I say a a kind of logic that can be abstracted from the figure of the drone, um, some aspects of that logic include the automation of data collection um, at a kind of comprehensive, ubiquitous level, uh, its combination with automated forms of uh, data processing and eventually uh, automated forms of response and that 's a trajectory that the military figure of the drone is following you know what 's happened is um, drones uh, because of of their uh, physical affordances you know they can stay aloft for a long time um, uh, they 're being equipped with incre- increasingly powerful sensor arrays that can capture huge amounts of information, so what they make possible is the move in the direction of always on comprehensive data capture, Uh, you know, a a context in which, at least for certain um, areas, uh, monitoring can take place all the time, 24 hours a day. Uh, And what that results in is the collection of so much information that it becomes uh, very difficult to process um, by humans. So then, that pushes in the direction of the necessity for automated forms of information processing, automated forms of uh, image recognition, automated forms of pattern recognition that can be used to detect anomalies that um, would then be of interest to uh, people who are running the drone program and eventually automated forms of response. So um, there's been a lot of discussion recently about so-called lethal autonomous weapons uh, or, you know, um, uh, military robots that that would be able to um, engage in lethal combat without necessarily having a human in the in the command chain you know they they could um, identify and act upon targets autonomously uh, and you know there are definitional issues around you know, what actually counts as, as autonomy um, and there are Lots of interesting discussions taking place around that, but the point is this is the direction that we 're headed towards kind of increasingly automated forms of response in order to cut down on response time in order to facilitate um, uh, forms of efficient uh, um, asymmetrical warfare um, but you know when I think about ways in which this logic transforms into other spheres, i just to give some simple examples i i you know there are ways in which um, I, I, you can think about distributed networks of probes that do other things besides military surveillance. Um, there was a, There's a program that's funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration in the U.S. that um, its, its goal is to include basically toxic chemical and gas sensors in every cell phone. And then anybody who's got a cell phone that turns on their sensor um, as they move through the spaces populated by humans Uh, these devices automatically sniff the air and then send data back to headquarters about um, the air quality and whether or not there's something uh, of alarm out there. Uh, But what intrigues me is that way in which the population is becoming equipped with sensors that allow for the comprehensive monitoring of the space through which um, people move. Uh, And, you know, that notion of creating a web of networked, interactive, mobile um, information collection devices that all send their information to central headquarters in ways that can then be centrally analyzed and responded to fits to me with this this logic of um, uh, drone operations. And, you know, that has some consequences for thinking about what the goals of surveillance and information processing uh, are in, in these contexts. And the goal is redoubling an environment, capturing all of the information that you can, uh, and then acting upon that environment in ways that are designed to um, preempt uh, undesirable futures. Um, and that, notion, that those goals of kind of environmental surveillance, collecting everything that you can and, uh, um, uh, and then making decisions based on processing those huge amounts of information, that's increasingly characteristic of the way in which interactivity works in so many contexts these days. I was thinking about about Amazon.com the other day because, um, in the wake of Brexit, apparently the UK has agreed to to lower its um, uh, restrictions on drone flights in ways that would allow Amazon to test its drone delivery program in in the UK, and uh, and you know so drones come back in here are, here's the drones appearing in the realm of commerce, but what's intriguing to me is they're linked to a um, data-driven program that Amazon is developing um, that's, that's uh, based on the notion of anticipatory shipping, that uh, Amazon would have such a detailed profile of your consumer interests that it would know in advance what you want, and that would actually be able to ship it to you before you know you want it. And, you know, the ideal... For, they've patented a technology for doing this, but the idea... Uh, Or the ideal form of this would be that, you know, the moment you order something on Amazon, um, they say, well, actually, it's at your doorstep. Or even more ideal would be you open your door. A drone has just deposited a little package for you. And you're like, that's it. That's, that's just what I need. It's a, it's a kind of data-driven form of preemption, which for me has connections with drone logic, you know, also based on preemption. They deliver a package uh, that's actually not what what you wanted, but is what's designed to preempt a, an undesirable outcome. Um, but But in order to make these types of decisions about where to ship what types of commodities, they have to have as comprehensive a database about your... Um, consumption habits as possible. In order to do that, they have to sell as comprehensive an array of products as possible. And if you go to Amazon.com in the U.S. now, they sell they sell so many things. It's you know you can buy everything from um, you know one fresh apple to a half million dollar artwork to a refrigerator to um, a flat screen television to herbal supplements. What they've done is created a kind of you know, environment of consumption where almost all of the consumer goods are available um, through Amazon, which then allows them to create as comprehensive a portrait of consumption habits as possible, which then allows them to imagine the possibility of knowing what you want before you want it and acting on that in a, in a, in a, what I'm calling a preemptive way, in a a sense to preempt your desire.
0: I'm interested in the symbolic sort of Function of the drone. It's, uh, I'm noticing its shift of the drone industries into consumer and media markets. For example, that it's that it's serving a way of not only you know creating more content, but changing the notion of the way we can view events and social life, and indeed receive products. One well, an obvious one here, and I, I don't know whether you've had any uh, chance to give it any thought, is something like. The drone racing leagues that are popping up around the world um, there 's an online sort of channel d- dedicated to live streaming of drone racing and it 's this the the constant creation of ancillary markets build off the back of that that symbolic power do you have, i mean have you had a chance to think about these issues
1: yeah I, well i 've thought about them in through this type of an approach you know, it 's intriguing to me why it is that the drone has become such a a, a ubiquitous kind of pop-cultural phenomenon. Um, uh, You know, why the drone seems to have captured the cultural imagination in a variety of ways, everything from warfare to pizza delivery, Um, and uh, to, as you point out, uh, you know, new forms of sport. I, I... I've spent some time thinking about that, you know, because in some ways the, the consumer-level drone is actually not that different from radio-controlled helicopters, you know, that I watched when I was a kid, people flying at the beach out in, out in Long Island in New York. Um, you know, radio-controlled device, line of sight, um, you know, uh, they these tended to be gasoline-powered uh, you know, most of the drones, or a lot of the drones are electric um, or the consumer level ones. Um, you know, why? Why Why has the drone captured the cultural imaginary? And, you know, I, I'm not sure I have a clear answer to that. I, I can speculate on that. You know, one speculation is, in a sense, it's a kind of return of the, um, I don't know, the transport or ballistic imaginary of the of the mid-1950s. So, You know, you remember those popular science magazines that they all they were all about jetpacks and personal, you know, airplanes and um, all of the ways in which technology revolution was going to manifest itself in transport. And what happened in the late 20th century is the technological imaginary moved to information uh, and, um, you know, and using that term, which is now fallen by the wayside, but, you know, information superhighway you know, is still incorporating the transport imaginary, but moving it into the register of, of information. Um, and in a way, the drone rehabilitates that that uh, transport imaginary. Um, you know, it, it brings brings back that kind of, I don't know, slightly object-oriented tech fascination with things, you know, which disappeared in the, communi- in the communication um, context. You know, it was, it was no longer about cool gimmicks. I mean, it was about cool interfaces, maybe, or, you know, cool devices, but not about these cool little flying things. And, you know, drones kind of bring that back. But, but you know, I, I think there's something else going on, too, which is... Um, I, the relationship between transport and, and information is a fascinating and you know has a deep history in in media studies um but you know one of the things that's happening now is that the speed of of information has in some sense put pressure on the speed of things <laughs> in ways that um you know make the possibility of the speed of things you know maybe interesting in ways that they weren't quite Twenty or thirty years ago, when I or forty, whenever I was watching them flying these, these devices, um. So it, nobody back in the 1970s was really worried about how fast, you know, you could get something from Amazon.com. There was no Amazon.com. People went to the shop and bought stuff, and you know the the pace was limited by the physical space. Now we've entered a world where we're so used to getting things so fast. You know, you go online, you get the article in a, you know, a split second, but you can't get the thing in a split second. And and that divide is has opened up. And, uh, and you know, people like Sergey Brin at Google, who's working on the Google Wing drone delivery program, that's one of the things that bothers him. You know, He's said, you know, on Google, you can get the information as fast as you want, but you can't get the things. And so we're working on this program now that, you know, when you order a bottle of Coke or dog treats or whatever, it can find you wherever you are and hover over you and drop it down to you on a fishing line and, and you'll get it. Um, and, you know, his claim is that this is more than just about, I don't know, some type of um, – I don't know, constitutional impatience that's a result of the information age. But it's also about transforming the world because transport technologies have transformative effects on a society when you can move from, you know, objects moving at the pace of, you know, horseback to moving at the pace of the railroad and then at the pace of jet transport you actually have quite dramatic transformations in society his claim is you know that maybe this type of increased speed of delivery will have equally transformative uh impacts but anyway so uh, so that's that's one answer um i i think there's another one i the, the drone is a, is a kind of figure is I, I think there's a lot to unpack there you know We've gotten used to a certain type of drone aesthetic or a drone vantage point. That's that's the result of um, the popularity of drone imagery or photography. You know, they're drone selfies. You can throw it up and it'll take a photo of you from a drone height. The college where I work has a promotional video that's got a lot of drone footage. You know, swooping over the campus and showing you know, the nice buildings and the palm trees and so on. And, uh, you know, we see news events through a uh, view of the drone, sporting events through through um, the perspective of the drone. The drone is a perspective from on high. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it invites us to imagine a certain type of God's eye position from which patterns can be emerged, uh, can be discerned. And uh, I've noticed that in uh, in some of these data mining articles that I look at in the popular press, often there's there's a view from on a high that you know connotes that notion of being able to remove oneself from being in the fray to being above the fray and see the pattern that emerges from the fray. So, you know, all of these things from the drone, the drone aesthetic to the drone, um, you know, need for speed <laughs> uh, to the fascination with the kind of tech, you know, the, the, I don't know, the, jetpack imaginary, all of these things seem to me to be ingredients for, that might help explain the cultural resonance of the figure of the drone.
0: And an area where you also see the drone, interestingly enough, is in surfing and sur- the coverage of surfing. Now, you know, what sort of relationship can you sort of identify between, I suppose, and sport, media, um, Cameras, uh, sensors—the sorts of things you're interested in—in in relation to surfing.
1: Um, well, yeah, thank you. I, as somebody who's, you know, kind of a, um, spent some time out on the water, I'm I'm intrigued by the possibilities of of uh, the I don't know what you would call the drone aesthetic in in this context. Um, you know that i you know again when i talk about these technologies and i think about their affordances and also the concerns they raise i spend a lot of time thinking about the concerns but i'm also interested in the affordances and um you know d- drones open up a, a kind of perspective and a, a way of seeing that i think you know is is interesting in a variety of ways it allows you know the the angle is not it's not always unique to the drone it's quite similar to low flying helicopter shots often, uh, you know, for, for these types of contexts like drones in sport. But, you know, you, you can't have a low-flying helicopter over a football game or, or, you know, you can have it over surfers, but not in the middle of surf contexts contests. And you wouldn't want to have like three or four of them. <laughs> you know, you know it completely changes the whole environment they 're incredibly loud plus they 're incredibly expensive plus they're you know can be dangerous if you 've got them flying low altogether um, you know the drone opens up the possibility for this for um, new types of angles and perspectives you know when it comes to surfing if you if you look at the um, uh, world surf league uh, events very often these days they've got you know they 've got drone mounted cameras that are um, flying along, you know, they've got cameras all over the place, somebody in the water, somebody on the beach, um, but they've got them in the air, and you can see the drones actually flying around, and they give you these perspectives that are otherwise unattainable, you know, somebody, uh, you know, getting inside a tube, which is when the wave folds over you, and, um, you know, usually that's got to be a water shot, but, you know, what if you shoot that from above, and you can see the wave just kind of, like, fold over, or if you shoot it at the eye level of the, of the you know, person who's who's in the wave, it opens up these these new perspectives um, and it, you know, changes the way that, that we see things and it changes our type of access. Surfing is is a sport, you know, often the good break is quite far offshore, it's not particularly accessible, um, it's not easy to get good camera angles out there, you can't, you know, unless you put a lot of money into building scaffolds or things like this, uh, And the, but the drone becomes, you know, one way uh, to access new angles or new ways of, of seeing this. I don't know. It'd be an interesting question. I haven't I haven't thought about this, but um, you know, surf competitions are, are judged and um, you know, the perspective is from the viewer on the beach. And I don't I don't know the extent to which the, the judges actually have access to the, the drone footage and I don't I don't know what what the rules are or how that's changed, how they see a wave. But, you know, very often the perspective on the beach doesn't allow you to see you know key elements of the wave, especially if it 's one of these days where it 's raining, the wind is blowing the the wave is uh, slightly off angle and it 's you know quite a bit offshore. you know you may not have the best vantage point from a place on the beach, um, and the drone might allow you to see things in, in how that wave is ridden that you you couldn 't see otherwise, it might change the way in which these competitions get judged
0: i got ask this question about almost any. Sport that people are, or pastime or leisure activity that people are interested in, but why surf? What is it about surfing that appeals to you?
1: Oh, um, surfing! Surfing is a I've found it's it's um, I, you know it it appeals to people who have what's the way to put it a certain type of tendency to compulsion <laughs> or addiction. Um surfing is a you know I started it relatively late. Um you know if you don't start surfing when you're like 8 to 10 um there's no way you're ever going to be a you know a high level surfer. It's going to be quite hard. <laughs> um and if later in life you start it the harder it is to to pick up I think well, like all things I suppose. Um but uh it's it's one of those sports that the learning curve is is um it takes you a long time before you even stand up on a wave. Um, you know, again, unless you're kind of prodigy or, uh, you know, a little kid who's <laughs> not not really thinking about those things and just doing it naturally. Um, but it's kind of, you know, it's one of these sports where you don't just pick it up and go, ah, oh, yeah, I'll try that out and then come back to it a couple of months later and try it out again. Like there's some period that you have to go through a, a pretty compulsive um, relationship to it. And I, I, that's something that kind of just appeals to me on a as a personality. Um, you know, you try and try again, and you know you're, uh, um, and then you know you get a little something. You stood up for a second, and then you know that that um, you know intermittent positive reinforcement, which is I suppose the stuff of addiction. Um, you know, drives you back again. Like I got it. I can I can I capture that again, and. Uh, and then you get a longer ride, and then you get out on the face, and you know, then you're able to do a turn. Um, and you have to work and work and work for this. And, and surfing, you know, compresses the actual time you spend on a wave versus the time you spend, quote unquote, surfing, is minuscule. You know, you could be out there for two hours and catch three or four waves that are good rides if it's a crowded lineup. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, it compresses in those few seconds a kind of intensity that you've been, um, you know, working at and trying to capture. And that payoff is so intense that it leads you to then, you know, paddle around and try to find the right wave and spend more hours in the water. I, I think you also have to kind of love the ocean, which I've always loved, you know. Um, surfing as a as a sport, it, you know, it immerses you in a medium that's not your natural medium. And um, you've got to be somebody, I think, who loves that medium and uh, enjoys that feeling of being in the water and um, the kind of, uh, you know, freedom from gravity and that um, rhythm and the, uh, you know, also the beauty of it. Um, so, you know, s- surfing is a, you know, I, there's a reason why surfing gets associated with quote unquote a lifestyle. And I think it's because of the huge amount of time that you've got to spend actually not surfing when you're surfing. <laughs>
0: you could nominate a book that you think everyone should read. What would it be?
1: And it's going to come out of left field for um, from our discussion, but I'll I'll make some links. Um, there's a book by Alenka Zupančič called "Why Psychoanalysis," and it it makes the case for the continuing relevance to critical theory of psychoanalytic theory, and it does so in a way that connects in ways that I think your conversation has actually um, the mental and the material, the physical and the discursive um, in in. You know, in ways that have become so important for contemporary discussions of media studies, of technology, we live in a world in which um, in the theory realm, you know, people have kind of rebounded uh, back against the discursive turn by... Nominating a return to quote unquote you know new materialisms of various kind you know we've got to move beyond the words and beyond the language to the things uh, you know that that um you know maybe didn't we got short shrift when we were spending all our time on discourses and 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 you know I, I think that connects with. Um, what 's going on in, in media studies around the relationship between data and information and the physical infrastructures that support them you know there 's a, there's a tendency in the reception of digital media technologies to get caught up in the um, informational aspect of it and to think about the data and think about the information and um, to hype the benefits and the platforms and to turn away from the uh, consideration of the physical infrastructures that that support these that used to when I was coming up in media studies. You know, political economy was one of the big, big frames that we would use, you know, who owns the media, who controls the stations, you know, all these questions about, you know, who owns and controls the Internet backbone or who owns and controls the server farms, they don't have the same type of role in, in the media studies discussion as the as the media monopoly did back in the day when I was coming up. Uh, and, you know, I, and so I I welcome some of these turns in the, in the direction of matter that say, you know, wait a second, you know, it's not just about a cloud, it's about server farms and who owns them and controls them and they use up a lot of energy and you have to build them underwater to keep them cool and so on and so forth. You don't have to, but Google's doing some of that. Um, Uh, and so this connection between the mental and the material seems to me to be a key theme Uh, but you know even even surfing (laughs) you know the the connection between i don't know the forms of data and information that characterize the increasing datification of of all forms of sport including surfing right You you can buy these surf watches now that you know tell you how long you were on the wave how fast you were going um uh you know i'm i'm guessing that the Practitioners at a high level collect all kinds of data about the waves they 've ridden you know the length of time, the number of turns all of all of this um uh, information that's all entering into digital enclosures of various kinds. Um, you know, the, the connection between the kind of datification of, of these sports and the actual physical embodied experience of of participating in them. And it, it looks to me like psychoanalysis has some really interesting things to say about the relationship of the social to the biological, of the, the you know, the mental to the material. Um, the case that Zupanchich makes is that's what psychoanalysis is all about. It's about thinking... Um, how these two levels in non, not in a determinate way, but how they overlap and what it means, and actually what it is that comes out of that very overlap that 's what 's characteristic of um, of a human experience um, and what 's you know, specific and unique to what it is to be a biological entity that also has language <laughs> uh, um, and and to think those two things uh, together. And so I, you know that book i i i 'd recommend that as a as an interesting place to look, and maybe a good antidote to i mean there 's something retro about bringing up psychoanalysis in in these contexts but i i, I feel it 's a horizon i don 't believe that it 's a horizon that 's been surpassed i think it, there have been attempts to surpass it, but we we have yet to go back and in, engage the the full lessons of of um, thinking about uh, you know, the relationship between the mental and the material, the social and the, and the biological, in, in ways that I think get short shrift in contemporary literature. You know, I, people talk to me about, um, you know, intelligent robots and autonomous robots and and um, um, the kind of turn towards a certain form of post-humanism, which actually means surpassing uh, um, humans. But I, I don't think they... I think more engagement has to be pursued when it comes to thinking about what we mean by intelligence. You know, intelligence in a, in a machine doesn't just mean the ability to make um, calculations very fast. I, I don't think that's what we mean by intelligence. Uh, and questions of desire. You know, what's, what's the desire of, of the robot? What is it? Can we have a meaningful concept of desire? You know, uh, um, uh, when we talk about autonomy, what do we, what do we mean by autonomy? It's, it's a kind of attempt to think about subjectivity in a post-subjective context, all of these questions seems to me to, to return us to some of the important questions that were raised by psychoanalytic theory so that 's something i 'm thinking about now and putting in a plug for that book
0: it 's a fascinating recommendation <laughs> now what are you uh, just as a way of um, sort of finishing up what are you working on now and what can we expect in the next couple of years in terms of your research
1: well it 's the the drug book and i 'm hoping to get that um, finished up within the next year. And, uh, you know, and and that'll be – that's meant to be a kind of contribution to the discussion, not so much about, you know, drones in international relations as it is a contribution to ongoing discussion of um, media technologies and their relationship to social, cultural, and, and political life. And, you know, the wager of that book is to think about the drone as a medium. And you know, I, I teach a class on on drones, and I, I get this reaction often: "Well, you're a media studies professor. Why are you teaching a class on drones?" And I'm like, "Drone is a medium." Is the case that I'm I'm making. So you know, that's that's part of what um, part of the conversation I'm hoping to engage with with that. I'm I'm also um, doing some work that's continuing work that I started while I was at the University of Queensland that looks at public understandings and awareness. Of um, how information is collected and, and used about them, and the types of control people would like to have over the collection and use of personal information, uh, and also in relation to you know kind of an extended um, set of arguments uh, um, to the drone work is thinking about this um, uh, the development of interactivity through the lens of what I've called uh, with Mark Burden the. Uh, the, a censor society, a society in which, in, in, in a way, this is a, uh, this is a kind of response to discourses on smart spaces and the Internet of Things. Um, you know, uh, I'm I'm interested in in approaching those topics, the ways in which. The objects that we, that we engage with in the world and the spaces through which we move uh, are becoming increasingly folded into the digital enclosure uh, or becoming increasingly informated um, uh, I'm, I'm, I use the notion of a sensor society to suggest that um, as those changes develop it will be important to pay attention to the infrastructures that make possible. You know the smart things and the Internet of Things, and you know, like these things that are talking to each other, you know, don't do this spontaneously and autonomously. They do it as part of a of a um, built out um, infrastructure and network. And you know, again, those questions of who operates, controls, and owns those infrastructures, I think, are going to be crucial ones for uh, understanding the role that information plays uh, in the society that we're building for ourselves.
0: Mark, thanks for sharing your insights with me. Uh, It's been a, a genuine pleasure.
1: Thanks for your interest and patience. I've enjoyed the chat.